all right. Glad you guys are here. Uh, we're going to keep going in our series through the book of Acts. So if you want to just flip there with me, that'd be awesome. We're in Acts 17. And here's what we do at this church. We just open up the Bible and we talk about it. It's, it's not sort of what we have to say. It's the word of God. And we just kind of open it up and talk about what's there. And we're hitting this week another famous uh, sermon, another famous speech from the book of Acts. And I've talked about this before, how weird this is for me, trying to preach a sermon on the Apostle Paul's sermon. It's just awkward, okay? Like, this would be like trying to recreate, like, the Gettysburg Address or, like, the I Have a Dream speech, okay? I'm, I'm not, I, I can't do that. But here's the benefit is my sermon notes are, like, already done for me. And apparently Paul was a fan of the three-point sermon as well. So, uh, <laughs> Genuinely, uh, I don't think I actually mean that. I'm not, okay, but, but genuinely this breaks down pretty easily. His sermon breaks down into three points, three main points that are pretty simple, and so I'm gonna roll with it. If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Uh, so the first point is, who is man? Then the next one, who is God? And then how should we respond? And I think you're gonna see the text break down pretty closely into that. So let's talk about that first one. Who is man? So I'm going to start in Acts 17, verse 16. Follow along with me, if you would. Now, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I love that last line. Isn't that hilarious? I feel like that's mocking the Athenians a little bit. Like it's giving you a little perspective into that culture. So this is Athens, right? Like you guys know about Athens. This was, this was the, one of the prominent times in the mind in human history. Now Athens was kind of on its decline a little bit, but it still was this historic city that essentially held the origins of philosophy. And so what they would do in Athens is they would sit around and they would talk about stuff. And they would try and figure out what it means. And Paul's like, okay, I'll start talking about stuff. I'm going to tell you about this Jesus guy. And here's the thing. The Athenians would talk about life. They would have all these philosophies, and they couldn't agree on anything. Okay, like, did you take philosophy classes in college? That stuff gets weird. I took a philosophy course where legitimately we couldn't agree on the fact that we existed, like, if you try and prove that, it's actually shockingly difficult. We fought about that. and It was just like, what the heck are we doing with our lives? That's what the Athenians are doing here. And here's the thing. They can't agree on anything. There's a philosophy for as many as there are people in Athens. But there's one thing that they agreed on. One thing that was undeniable to any thinking person. And it was that there was something that is beyond us. Something big, something out there, something transcendent. And they didn't fully agree on what that thing was, but they knew 
that whatever that thing was, it was worth giving their lives to. That it was the thing that would add meaning and significance, that it would be the thing that would be worth living for. And so as much as they disagreed about anything, everything, they agreed on one thing, that they should worship this big transcendent being. And so their city was full of temples and full of idols. And Paul walks in and he sees all these temples and these idols. And actually, I want you to see that what was true then is actually true now. That all of us in this room and every person that you know intuitively believes that there's something bigger than us out there and that there's meaning to life. Even an atheist would agree that there's some sort of meaning that we should all pursue in life. We just don't always know what it is. But that thing that's beyond us that gives meaning to our life actually is the thing that we worship. It's not just that it's sort of out there and we know about it, but we're attached to it. We love it. We desire it. We pursue meaning in that thing and we wrap our lives around it. We dedicate ourselves to it. And so our temples and our idols might look a little bit different than they looked in Athens, but we still have them. For example, one of the temples in our city, U.S. Bank Stadium. In, in a couple weeks, worshipers will descend on U.S. Bank Stadium to watch the Final Four. And they'll celebrate and they'll go nuts and they'll find meaning in their existence in that temple. In rush hour, you're caught in traffic as people drive to their places of worship. They drive to work where they find their meaning and significance or on the back end they drive home to their family where they find meaning and significance and they wrap their lives around that God, around that idol. Tim Keller gives a good definition of idolatry and, and worship. So this is what he says. Worship is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I just had that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And so we're in the section about who are human beings. Here's the first big truth about humanity is that all human beings worship. It's a false idea that there's religious people and non-religious people, that there's people that worship and people that don't. We all worship. It's just a question of what we worship. And here's why we all worship, why we look for meaning and significance in something and wrap our lives around it, is because God designed us to do that. Like chairs are made to be sat in, bookshelves made to hold books, human beings made to worship. That's what we do. It's who we are. But here's the bad news, the second big truth about human beings. It's not just that we worship, but that we have become false worshipers. That we worship the wrong things. So I don't know if you guys had the magnet section in school growing up. But I don't remember much from school growing up, but I remember the magnets. For some reason, this blew my mind. The teacher would show up and would put those little uh, like iron filings on the desk, do you know what I'm talking about? Those little, I don't know how to describe them, iron filings, hopefully you know what that is. And, and then hand me a magnet. And I would hold that magnet and it would like shoot up to the magnet. I'm like, oh my gosh, the world is amazing, right? Like absolutely blew my mind. There's this invisible force that would just suck up these iron filings. Okay, this is what I'm saying is that human beings are iron filings. And God is a magnet. And he designed us to be sucked up into life with him. And that's why we all intuitively worship. 
God is this giant magnet above the world and he's pulling us up into relationship with him. But this is what happened in the fall is we separated ourselves from him and we got distance and the further away you get from a magnet, the less attraction it has. And we pulled ourselves away from that magnetic pull of God and we inserted into our lives these smaller magnets right into the middle of our lives, these false gods that we worship, pride, greed, lust, or even good things, family, work, ambition. We inserted these things and it attracts us. We get sucked up into it. And the question isn't whether you'll get sucked up into it. It's just which one you'll get sucked up into. You by design intuitively end up loving something that is false, something that isn't God. And you look to that thing to replace God in your life, to provide you with meaning and significance and security that only God could provide. So here's what Paul is going to do in his sermon, is he's going to push back on some of the false gods of the Athenians. And I think he would push back on those same gods in us. And so he's going to mention two groups of people, which I think structures the rest of his sermon, and he's going to push back on the thinking and the idolatry of these two groups of people. So the first group is the Epicureans, which I want to, I want to point out the Epicureans had a god, and it was the god of pleasure. So here's what the Epicureans believed. They believed in a god, as in this kind of absolute transcendent force, but that force in their mind was so remote that it had almost nothing to say about their day-to-day living. And so this is what they did. They just said, live however you want. So this was kind of their, their quote. The, the essence of their philosophy, the aim and end of life for every man is his own happiness. And happiness is primarily defined as pleasure. So we all should pursue our happiness, and the way to pursue your happiness is to live for pleasure. Okay, couldn't that be the tagline of American culture right now? Isn't that exactly what we hear all the time about what you should live for. Every advertisement you see is trying to convince you of this truth that, hey, you should live for whatever you want and just pursue your pleasure. That's what our culture says. Hey, don't tell us what to do. Don't tell us how to live. Each of us is just gonna decide for ourselves what we want. And so we're pursuing pleasure. It turns out that the God of Athens is actually the God of America. And here's what's true is a lot of you have seen the consequences of the God of pleasure. Maybe you were sacrificed on the altar to the God of pleasure as your parents pursued a job instead of you. Or as your parents pursued adultery and pleasure in sexual sin instead of valuing your family or as they pursued divorce because marriage wasn't fun anymore and so they broke up your family and, and you, you've wreaked havoc in the middle of that. You've been a victim of this God or maybe you're the one perpetrating this. This is true in your life. Okay, the second group of people that is mentioned is the Stoics. The Stoics. And what the Stoics believed in is the God of self. The God of self. So this is what the Stoics believed. They believed in the human mind and in the human will. They believed that human reason was enough to determine the right way to live. And and then at that point, as we rationally came to a conclusion about the way we should live, 
that we had enough willpower and discipline to actually live that way. And so the Stoics wanted to be known for their morality. They wanted to be known for the good lives that they were living, but you know what they were actually known for? Their pride. Because their morality was a big show about how good they were and how capable they were. Christians should be known for our love and for our charity and for our humility. You know what we're often known for? Our pride. It's true of me. That my job is to be this giant arrow pointing you to Jesus. And so often I flip that thing back around and I point it at me. Because when you worship the God of self, you don't want to be dependent on anyone or anything else. You want to demonstrate that, that you have the character in and of yourself to be good. So here's what's true is the most evil thing about you actually might be your goodness. The most evil thing about you might actually be your goodness because it might be the way that you're actually denying Jesus. And it kind of looks like morality, it kind of looks like Christianity, but it's actually all about you. And so I think Paul is going to direct the rest of his sermon towards these two false gods. Towards the false god of pleasure, the false god of self. And so towards the god of self from the Stoics... He's going to start to speak into that truth about God. And so here's, here's what you need to know. Here's why this is important to your life. is because the way that you obey Jesus, the way that you stop sinning, is not just to try really hard to stop sinning. You actually need to love something different. You need to be captured by God instead of by your idols. And the way you get captured by God is you see how beautiful the truths about him are and how much better he is than the thing that you're functionally worshiping. And so Paul is going to push back on their idolatry by asserting truths about who God is. And he's going to start by pushing back on the Stoics. So remember, the Stoics are that God of self, the kind of the prideful people. And he's going to push back on the Stoics by asserting characters about who God is. So look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, so this is like a gathering of the influential people in the city, the, the men who set the trajectory of like social life, worship life in the city. Standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Okay, did you, did you catch this? This is such a legit move. So like the smartest people in the world at that time are saying, we know there's a God out there, but we can't figure out who he is. And Paul shows up out of nowhere and is like, hey, I'll tell you who he is. I know who he is. Let me tell you. It's so like, oh, so intense. Okay, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So he's going to start pushing back on the pride of the Stoics. And we actually know likely the exact place where this happened. So his speech happened in one of two places, and it likely was on Mars Hill, which is this little hill outside of the Acropolis in ancient Athens, which the Acropolis was essentially this big hill where all of their famous temples were built. Some of, the, some of the most amazing buildings in the world were built on top of this Acropolis, and Paul is standing on this little hill, and I actually had the chance to go to Athens and stand on this hill. My eyes are a little squinty in this, it's weird, but none of you are paying attention to me because you're looking at that Acropolis behind. So, so this is nuts. So 
but now I drew attention to it. It was weird. Okay, not a great move. Okay, so this is likely where Paul was standing when he gave this speech, and I got to stand there and read this story. It was one of the cooler moments of my life. But here's why I want you to see this, is the backdrop to Paul's sermon is these amazing temples, including the Parthenon, one of the, one of the greatest buildings in the history of the world. And, and look back, you can take that down now. Uh, <clears throat> look back at verse 24. Watch what Paul says, standing against that backdrop. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, a.k.a. Your cute little temples, Paul didn't actually say that, but that's kind of how I picture that. Your cute little temples, God doesn't live there. Like, oh, that's a nice little Parthenon. God's way too big for that thing. He made heaven and earth. He made you. He's not going to come down and live in your little temple. So here's the first big truth about God, is God is transcendent. He's above and beyond, he's categorically different than anything else that exists. So here's what I want you to see in this, is that the gap between you and God is infinitely great. Like the gap between you and God is way bigger than the gap between you and an ant. Like, not to be confused with aunt, ant, like the little animal. I, w- I wasn't sure if that was clear. Okay, so... Uh, Okay, so picture trying to explain algebra to an ant. Trying to to explain investments and economics and morality to an ant. That's what it's like when God tries to explain himself to you. Only the gap is just actually bigger. One of the biggest difficulties that we have, both Christians and unchristians alike, with Christianity and with the Bible, is that God is mysterious. We, we can't understand him. And so, so we see stuff in the Bible, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, that's hard for us to understand. And it, it conflicts with our understanding of the world. Or, or maybe it's not in the Bible, maybe it's in life. You look at something that's happening to you, and some of you are going through brutally hard stuff. Stuff that I can't even imagine. And I, it, this is not my attempt to minimize that. The pain is real. But you go through something hard, or you see someone go through something hard, And you can't come to grips with it. You can't explain it. And so when there's tension between your reason and your view of how the world should be and how the way that God made it and who God is, we tend to assert our reason over his, which is absolutely crazy, considering who we are and who he is. And so what we do is we doubt him. We doubt his goodness. We doubt his existence. We doubt his word, his scripture that he gave us. Not that human beings gave us, that he gave us. We doubt him because we don't like mystery, because we want to have the answers. But what if God was not interested in reducing himself down so that you could understand him? What if you can't figure out God the way that you would solve a math problem? Have the right equation, insert the right factors, and you spit out the right answer. What if God can't be solved like that? What if you can't figure him out, but you should just trust him? What if the answer to your questions was not you getting the answer to your questions, but it was you getting God? And you seeing that he's trustworthy, that he's reliable. Every time I doubt God, I forget 
And then he comes through for me and I remember that every single time in my life that I've needed him, that he's come through. That it hasn't always been the way that I wanted it to be, but it's always been better than what I could have imagined. That he's trustworthy, that he sent his son to die on a cross and that any God that would do that is trustworthy. That you can rest assured, that you can rest as a Christian because God is trustworthy every single time. He will never let you down. The answer to your questions is not you finding this neat little answer. It's you finding God and believing that he will come through for you because he always has in the past and he always will in the future. So God's transcendent. Paul keeps going. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Second truth about God, God is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. So here's what that means for us in relationship with God, is that we are in a one-sided relationship with God. Like, Like we are entirely dependent on God for everything and God is dependent on us for nothing. Yeah. And and that's weird to us. We're not used to relationships like that. Usually it's this this mutual thing, but this is a one-sided thing. God, hear me on this, God does not need anything from you. He doesn't need your character. He doesn't need your theology. He doesn't need your good works. He doesn't need anything because he's entirely self-sufficient. He has everything that he needs in and of himself and he's not served by human hands as a result. This truth is crazy about God. Mark 10, 45, one of my favorite verses in the Bible says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is absolutely crazy. Are you catching that? Like, in, in Christianity, the king and the servant reverse roles. So how should this work, right? The king sits on a throne and the servant gets that king everything that he needs, right? He he brings him his food. He does whatever that king wants. But here's what happens in Christianity is that when you trust Christ, you switch roles and you sit there and you rest while the king of the universe serves you. He gets you everything that you need in life because you can't do it for yourself. Every other religion and philosophy in the world has some version of God is up here. Or maybe it's not God. Maybe it's the good life, like human flourishing, whatever. It's up here. And you got to climb your way up to that. There's a list of, of steps or a series of things you got to do to work your way up to God or to human flourishing or whatever your goal is. This is what Christianity says. That gap is infinitely high. You can't climb high enough so God comes down to you. He walks down the steps and he comes to you and Jesus throws you on his back and then he carries you up into the presence of God. That's how Christianity works. Which that is like, that is incredible news. Like that is That is you just won the lottery type news. Like we should respond to that as if we had just won the lottery. That's everything you need in life. But it doesn't actually come across as good news often, right? It feels like kind of gross in us. Why? Because of our pride. Because if that's true, you realize there's nothing left for you to contribute or to add. Because you realize that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our failure. 
our mistakes. That's the only thing that we can offer up. So every analogy I tried to come up with this week was about basketball. I got basketball on the mind. I've been watching a lot of basketball. Um, one of my favorite parts about March Madness is the celebrations. Like the bench, have you seen this? The bench is getting a little out of control. Somebody throws down a dunk. I forget what game it was. Sometime over the last couple of days, somebody threw down a dunk, and one of the bench players literally just launched himself onto the court and just laid there, and that was the celebration. They're going crazy, right? And somebody, somebody makes a three, and they're throwing the threes up above their head, right? They're high-fiving. They go on a run, and they call, the other team calls a timeout. What do they do? The bench runs out. The players on the court run out. They, they high-five. They chest bump. They do whatever, right? There's this celebration, and it's fun to watch. Okay, imagine this, though. Imagine if they reacted like that, not when they won, but when they lost. Or, or like, not when they had a top 10 play, but they were on the not top 10. <laughs> right? Not top 10 is the best. If you don't know what that is, YouTube, not top 10. Uh, so somebody goes up for a dunk, and they throw it off the back of the rim and embarrass themselves, and then they go nuts. They're like, yeah! And the bench is going crazy. That dude slides on the floor. There's always that dude on the bench that his job is to hold people back from the court, and he takes his job way too seriously. That dude's doing this thing, right? They're, they're freaking out. They're celebrating. Imagine that. That'd be crazy, right? Okay. That's what Christianity is like. Let, let, me, let me connect that. Here's what Christianity is like, is you contribute... Your failure. Like Christianity, you're not that good at living the Christian life. I'm not that good at living the Christian life. We are not top 10 all the time. And we throw it off the back of the rim and we can be people who celebrate, who enjoy life. Why? Because it's not about your love and service to God. It's about God's love and service to you. And if you throw it off the back of the rim, if you fail, if you sin, if you fall into idolatry for the 800th time, God still loves you. He still serves you. He's still faithful to you. And if he's your God, your identity is wrapped up in him, not in you. And so you can celebrate regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how well you perform. But here's the deal. We don't really want to do that. Why? Because we're not interested in depending on God. We're interested in being God. You want to be transcendent. You want to know everything about the world. And you want to control it. One of the, I think, greatest unconfessed sin in the church in general, in our church in particular, is our desire for control. That when something doesn't go according to plan, you get anxious, you get stressed, you freaked out. You freak out. When someone in your life doesn't live up to your standards, your expectations about how they should live, you get bitter, you get frustrated, you get angry. When your family isn't this picture-perfect family, you get nervous about what other people would say. You want to know everything about life and control it into the way that you think life should be. And you don't want to be transcendent, just transcendent. You want to be self-sufficient. You don't want to depend on God. You want to depend on you because that makes you look better. You want to be strong in and of yourself. You don't want to be weak. You don't want to fail. You want to succeed. And so you live this life trying to, like the Stoics, where you're trying to to work yourself up, to have enough willpower, to have enough effort to follow God and to live this good life and to put together this nice moral life so that you don't have to depend on on anyone. 
That's our idolatry coming out. And so how should we respond to that temptation towards idolatry, to worship false gods instead of the true God? How should we respond? Look at verse 29. I think he's going to push back on the Epicureans, the pursuers of pleasure in this section. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What should we do? How should we respond to the fact that we want to be God, but we're not God? We should repent. Instead of asking God to change, we should change. Why? Did you catch the logic? Why should we repent? Verse 31, because the judgment is coming. Because the judgment is coming. Two descriptors of the judgment from this text. First one, the judgment will be universal. Okay, it doesn't just say that he will judge people. It says he will judge the world. This kind of universal judgment. No one can escape No one can travel far enough to get away from God when he comes as the judge. There's no way to get out of it. Second, the judgment will be just. Verse 31 again, he will judge with righteousness. With rightness is his justice. Okay, let's let's call this what it is. We don't like God's judgment and justice a majority of the time. That's that's really hard for us to think about and to think about what the implications of that are, that people will come under his judgment. But I want to just ask you to just bear with me for a second here. Even though this is hard, just hear me out. Why is it that we don't like his justice and his judgment? Like, Like there's no one that I know who takes issue with true justice. We just take issue with the miscarriage of it. So here's what I mean. Larry Nasser, a man who committed just obscene atrocities that assaulted several women throughout his time as a coach. There was no one in that sentencing of Larry Nasser that stood up and said, this isn't fair. There was no one who stood up and said, hey, this man should not go to prison. This isn't fair. This isn't right to execute justice. Why? Because he deserved it. It was, it was the right response to evil. And that judge, by responding that way to evil, was responding appropriately. He was good. In fact, that judge would have been evil if he wouldn't have sentenced that evil. No one takes issue with justice. What we take issue with is a miscarriage of justice. So we rightly hate it when innocent people are judged for things that they didn't do. So let me come back to my question, why do we tend to hate the justice of God? It's because we don't actually think that we're guilty. We don't think it's actually justice. We think that it's a miscarriage of justice because we're not actually that bad. We don't deserve judgment, and so we're frustrated by it. But I want you to to imagine something. I might have mentioned this before. This has been kind of a powerful picture in my own mind. I want you to imagine something. What if I could play 
your life on these screens. So starting back from when you were young, and I could not only play your life, but I could play your motivations, your intentions, and your thoughts. Every thought that you've ever had. Everything that you've done alone and in private when you thought no one was watching. How would you feel? I would feel terrible. I would feel like a hypocrite. Because I am not innocent. I have not lived up to the standard that I should have lived up to. And there's stuff in my life that I hate, that I regret, mistakes that I made that I can't get back. Okay, this is what I'm saying is that God knows you. He made you and so he knows everything about you. He's transcendent. He watches your life on a screen like that. And judgment is actually the appropriate response to that. And one day, that tape will play and you will have to give an answer for the way that you've lived your life. I will have to give an answer for the way that I've lived my life. And so the call and response to this really hard truth, the call and response to this is to repent. To, to turn. Repentance means to change your mind, to change your thinking, and to change your way of life. You're going this way, and then you turn around and you go this way. And repentance isn't just to try and get better on your own, to exercise some willpower, to try and clean yourself up. It's to throw yourself on the mercy of the judge and say, I, you're right. I deserve judgment. I've, I've broken your law. I haven't been the way that I should have been. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The question is, is are we willing to do that? Now, I'm begging you to turn. And I know that... I, Maybe some of you are thinking, look, man, this is kind of intense. I know this is intense. But, like, this is eternal life. This is an intense issue. Like, your life is at stake. Your education, your decisions, everything good that you've ever done, your self-improvement, your growth, your family, your relationships, none of it matters if you miss this point. That you have to turn from the way that you were living from your false loves and worship Jesus instead of worshiping idols. Turn away from sin and turn to him. Like to the Stoics and to us, Jesus at the judgment will say, your intellect and your willpower does not count for much here. To the Epicureans, the fun that you had pursuing pleasure, the way that you wanted to live, it doesn't seem like much fun now. There's only one answer at this point, to agree with God that we've fallen away from him and to ask him for mercy, but remember who the judge is. What was the descriptor of the judge in this text? That his name is Jesus Christ and that he rose from the dead. And the resurrection is not Jesus just asserting his authority over the universe, his authority to judge. It is that, but it's also more. It's him asserting his mercy. Why? Because in order to raise from the dead, he had to die. And you know why he died? Because he loved you infinitely. And he took on the sentencing for your sin, the judgment for your sin, so that you would never have to take it on. All of the wrath, the anger of God, the righteous anger of God was poured out on him so it doesn't have to be poured out on you. He wants to trade places with you. He says, I'll take it. 
I'll take all of that guilt. I'll take all of that shame. You don't have to watch that your life on the screen anymore. That doesn't have to be true of you anymore because I love you. That's what that judge is like. And if you ask him for grace, he will offer it to you freely. And so here's what's true. If you trust in Jesus, that yeah, your life will play on that screen someday, but you know what happens is when Jesus sees you, he whispers in the ear of God the Father, hey, I know them, that one's mine. I love them, they're with me. And the tape changes. And it's no longer your life. It's the perfect life of Jesus playing. Every time he was kind, Every time he was full of grace, every time he healed someone, every time he made the appropriate decision, every time he pursued God instead of pursuing sin, plays on that screen and you receive credit for it. And then you walk into heaven with the judge who says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's who the judge is. And so just come to him and ask him for mercy and he will offer it. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks that that is true. Yeah, that there's hard things for us to understand about you that we can't fully comprehend you. And that's a really good thing because you being in control is way better than us being in control. And thanks for not holding your, your position against us or our sins against us, but offering us a way out. Thanks for offering us mercy and grace. Um, we just confess as a church, I confess that I've sinned, I've fallen short of you, that I'm not the man that I should be, that we are not the people that we should be, and we deserve separation from you for that. We're sorry for our false loves, for the things that we pursued instead of pursuing you. Would you forgive us? And we trust in the fact that you will. Yeah, thanks, God. Thanks for offering us mercy. We love you. Amen.